As I said earlier, Exodus 16 is our passage. So if you have a Bible, find Exodus chapter 16. You'll find some notes in the bulletin. If you'd like to follow along, you can do that. Exodus really is a book of incredible stories. We've seen some amazing things so far, and we're just up to chapter 16. We've talked about uh, a bush that burned without burning up. We've talked about ten plagues of judgment that God brought on Pharaoh and the Egyptians. We've talked about the Red Sea being divided in two so that the people could walk through to freedom. And uh, our passage this morning falls right in line with some of those amazing stories. I want to mention a couple of preliminary things, and then we'll go over a big idea, and then we're going to read the entire chapter, which is a long chapter, I know, but I want you to hear the story. So we'll start with this. Quail are mentioned as part of God's provision in this chapter, but the focus is on God providing manna for his people to eat while they were in the wilderness. And I've given you some verses. You can look those up if you're interested in that. You can sort out what's being described there, but this is what I think I'm reading when I turn to the scriptures. There's not a whole lot of verses in the Bible that mention quail, either here in Exodus or looking back later. There's quite a few that talk about manna or bread from heaven, and I think what the Bible's describing to us is that while the people were in the wilderness, every day God provides bread for them. This was the staple. This was the regular occurrence, bread every morning when they woke up. But I think what the Bible is saying is there was only a couple of occasions. One of them is here. It's mentioned a couple of times in Exodus 16. And one of them is later where he provides quail for them. So the bread is like the everyday thing. And the quail is mentioned as it happening a couple of times. And it's just mentioned a couple of times in the Old Testament. There's just a couple of references that look back and remember that. Uh, I also want you to understand that this passage is the first passage in the Bible. It's the first occurrence of the word Sabbath. So you can go back to Genesis 2 and you can say, well, wait a minute, I thought that started back at creation. Well, in Genesis 2, there is a reference to the seventh day being set apart as holy. And then you can fast forward a little bit to Exodus 20 and you'll get to the Ten Commandments. We're working our way there. You'll read about the Sabbath and the Ten Commandments. But this is the first time in the Bible you actually come across the word Sabbath. And we're going to talk about it just briefly this morning. We'll talk about it more when it comes up in the Ten Commandments. The basic idea is pretty simple. God never intended the Sabbath to be some sort of burdensome thing for his people. He intended it to be a gift to his people. We read about it here for the first time. The big idea is really simple, but really monumental. You've got to grasp it, and then you've just got to let it sink in down deep and understand this. Despite their sin, God graciously provided for his people. We're going to read about their sin, and it's bad. And you expect something terrible to happen to these people, but instead God is gracious to them and he provides for them. Look, that big idea you could use in Genesis 3, right? Adam and Eve rebelling against God despite their sin, God was gracious to them. He didn't treat them like their sin truly deserved. You can take that big idea and trace it all through the Old Testament right up to Jesus. And you can say, despite our sin, God has been gracious to us. So this is a gospel truth we see presented here in Exodus 16. So that's the big idea. Despite their sin, God graciously provided for the people. So now we're going to read the chapter. And I know it's kind of long. I'll put it up on the screen. You can read up there. You can follow in your Bible. But we're just going to read Exodus 16, 1 to 36. So you follow along as I read the scripture. 
The word of God says, They set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. What are we that you, get, uh, that you grumble against us? And Moses says, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. As soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning. And it bred worms, and it stank. Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow's a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake, and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over, lay it aside, keep it till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, 
Some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white. The taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, This is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generation so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, Take a jar, put an omer of manna in it, and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna 40 years until they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. An omer is the tenth part of an afah. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we read this familiar story. We pray that you would help us to see truth about ourselves. We pray that you would help us to see truth about you, who you are, and how you relate to your people. Father, we pray that you would help us to see truth about the gospel, the good news about what you have done to save us through your son, Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen. When Brooke and I lived in Kentucky, we got hooked on a TV show, and the TV show was called Lost. I don't know how many of you watched this show. By your laughter, I'm assuming some of you have seen it or watched it. And uh, we watched Lost, and just to be transparent with you and to confess, when I say we got hooked, I mean we were hooked, like really hooked, addicted, geeked out, nerded out, got on every week and read the, the preview of what was coming and what was going to happen and all the speculation. And then as soon as it ended, got on the internet and what does that mean? What's going on? And if you watch the show, you know the appeal of it is that from the beginning all the way through the series, you really have no idea what's happening. Like no clue. You do not understand who are these people? Are they real people? Are they not real people? Is it what is happening? And you just watch and you watch and you try to figure it out. We watched every episode Never missed an episode all the way up through the lousy series finale. You can ask Hunter. They found out it was basically a dream at the end, right? Yeah, pretty much. And it was terrible. And we just watched the last episode and thought, well, what a waste. What a waste. Wow. So then, a couple of months back, I was on Netflix. And I don't, we have Netflix. And I know most of you guys have Netflix. Everybody has Netflix, they make so much money. And what we do when we, when we have Netflix is we spend more time scrolling through the movies than actually watching a movie, right? So we're scrolling and we're looking, do you wanna watch this? No, do you wanna watch that? No, that doesn't look very good. Nah, nah. We're going through and there's Lost. And I said, hey, we liked it the first time. Maybe we wanna watch it a second time. So we started it. I couldn't make it through the pilot episode because there was no tension. There was no drama to it. When I knew the end and how terrible the end was, the story was completely uninteresting. It had no interest whatsoever to me, and I just moved on. I hate to compare the Bible to Lost, but listen to me. 
Sometimes when we read the Bible, the exact same thing's going on. We know how the story's going to end. And even when we read it, we just sort of say, eh, yeah, nice story. And we miss some of the details and we miss some of the tension and we miss some of the suspense that was there when the people walked through this experience in real life. And I think there's an example of that here in this story. Look, when I start reading in Exodus 16, I bet most of you know how the story generally goes. Maybe for some of you that was the very first time you ever read that story and you started off and you said, are the people going to starve? Is this it? Is this how it all ends right here? But most of you know, no, they don't starve out in the wilderness. And so we just read about this horde of people marching with their livestock and their children out into the desert, and we really don't think twice about it. I just want you to, as best you can, dial it back and think about the tension and the risk that was involved for Moses in the people. And I just want to read to you a quote from A.W. Pink, one of my favorite Bible commentators. I'll put it up on the board. He says this, the leading of Israel into the wilderness of, of sin brings out the strength of Moses's faith. Here for the first time, the full privation of desert life stared the people fully in the face. Every step they took was now leading them further away from the inhabited countries and conducting them deeper into the land of desolation and death. The isolation of the wilderness was complete, and the courage and faith of their leader in bringing a multitude of at least two million people into such a howling waste demonstrates his firm confidence in the Lord God. Moses was not ignorant of the character of the desert. He had lived 40 years in its immediate vicinity. Therefore, he knew full well that only a miracle, yea, a series of daily miracles, could meet the vast needs of such a multitude. Moses knew what it was like to live in the desert. And he sees the cloud lead him out into the middle of nowhere, and he looks around at their provisions and the people and the crowd, and he's crunching the numbers and looking at it all as the leader, and he's no, he knows, he, he understands, we're not going to be able to make it unless God provides There's nothing out there for us. And yet he leads the people out. It's a continuation of the test that we talked about last week. Last week we talked about God testing his people. And we said when God's people experience his power and his glory in a unique and a new and a a special way, almost always God tests his people on the heels of that. He put them to the test. They experienced his power and his grace and his glory in the Passover, and he tested them as they're leaving Egypt and Pharaoh marches out after them, and they just fall to pieces. And then he shows them his power and his grace and his glory, and he parts the sea so that they can walk through it. And they walk through to safety, and they celebrate, and then immediately he tests them. They have no water, and the water they find is bitter. We talked about that last week. So he provides for them. Moses throws the log in, and they drink, and then they go to the the place called Elim with the palm trees and the springs, and God's power and his grace are displayed, and now here comes another test. And just like all the tests we've seen so far, and like all the tests that are coming in Exodus, the people fail miserably. And that brings us to the first idea I want you to see. What does Exodus 16 teach us about ourselves? Well, here it is. Human beings are radically corrupted by sin. We are radically corrupted by sin. There's no other way to explain the fact that every time these people get tested, they fail 
over and over and over and over again. I read this story. I can't help but think of my pastor growing up, David Evans, Trinity Baptist Church, Amarillo, Texas. I've heard him say it a thousand times in my life. You are worse than you think you are. However bad you think sin is in your life, however messed up you think sin has made you, it's worse than that. And the people are living that out, and we get to read about it in this story. And I hope that as you read this, it's a little bit like a mirror. When you look at the people and you see their constant failure, their constant grumbling, their constant rebellion, you say, that kind of reads a lot like my life. You don't read it with your finger pointed out, shaking it at the Israelites or the Hebrews saying, you goobers. But you look at it like you're looking in the mirror and you say, it's like I'm reading my own spiritual autobiography. Their sin is horrific, and I want you to see a few examples of this in the text. Look at Exodus 16, verse 2. It says, The whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. They're a grumbling people. Last week I reminded you of this. When you grumble, it's evidence that you are forgetful. It's evidence that you're ungrateful. It's evidence that you're self-centered, and it's evidence that you're immature. That's true way back in Exodus 16, and that's true today. It was true of these people. Look at verse 3. This is an amazing verse. Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in Egypt. They've seen God do some amazing things, and they actually open their mouth and say the words, We wish that we had just been killed by Yahweh back in Egypt and we had never come out here to the desert at all. Now look, you may say, they didn't mean it. That was just the kind of thing you say. You get to grumbling, you know how it is, you're hangry, you're upset, you just sort of feel entitled to it and you just say things. It's just sort of a figure of speech. Well, maybe it was. But if that's the figure of speech they use, they're way too loose with how they use God's name. And that's going to come up again in the fourth commandment. Do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. If this was just something you say, you don't need to just throw the Lord God into, into the midst of that and talk like you wish he would have killed you. That's an issue all in and of itself. On the other hand, maybe they meant it. Maybe they just really felt like this is so bad, it's so hopeless, it's going to be so terrible, our end is coming so soon, we wish it would have just all ended quickly back in Egypt. Look at verse 8, just a reminder about who they're really grumbling against. The Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against Him. Your grumbling is not against us, but it's against the Lord. You may think that you're grumbling against Moses and Aaron, You may think that you're grumbling against the driver in front of you. You may think that you're grumbling behind the little girl behind the subway counter. You're grumbling against the Lord. Not against Moses and Aaron. It's not just limited to your circumstance. You're really grumbling against the Lord. Verse 3, these people are forgetful and maybe they exaggerate a little bit. Look what they say up in verse 3. Basically, they say, do you remember the good old days when we sat by the meat pots and we filled our belly? 
they've completely forgotten that they were slaves in Egypt. And the, the text repeatedly described their slavery as bitter. This was bitter oppression, bitter slavery, bitter forced labor. It was terrible. The conditions were not good. They were miserable, groaning and crying out to the Lord. But now they get out in the wilderness and they look back on it and all they say is, you remember all the meat we had? Nobody talks about the long hours or the backbreaking work or the beatings or the oppression. They just sort of focus in on one thing and they forget all the terrible things and they exaggerate how good the good things were. Look at verse 20. It's not just grumbling, but it's in action. Moses said, don't stockpile it. Don't Tupperware it. Don't wrap it up for leftovers. And they do it. And you may say, well, you know, cut them some slack. They knew they were going to be hungry the next day. But the point is, God told them, don't do that. It's not going to last. Don't keep it. You trust me every single day to provide what you need. And they just rebel against it. And then we come to the end of the week, the Sabbath, when God has said, on the sixth day, you're going to take double. I know it's different. Are you tracking with me? Get your pens out. Take notes. Day six, you gather double. When you go out, there's not going to be anything there. Seventh day rolls around. They wake up. They march right out to get their manna. You may say, well, it's forgetfulness. It's foolishness. It's silliness. It's rebellion. This grumbling people rebelling against God when he said, don't try to keep it overnight. Then when he said, don't go out on the seventh day, it's just straight rebellion. And I want you to see what God thinks about it. Verse 28, the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? If you've read through Exodus, that question ought to send off lights and reminders. And it ought to take you right back to Exodus 10, where God is speaking through Moses to Pharaoh, and he says to Pharaoh, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? How long will you refuse, Pharaoh? In the very same turn of phrase, God is now looking not at Pharaoh, not at his soldiers, not at the slave masters, but at his people. And he says, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? You realize neither of those questions is really a question. Both of those questions are indictments on the people for their rebellion. Now, I don't know about you, but this is my best guess. Just kind of play along with me here. Let's say you could hop in a time machine and go back, talk to the Hebrews. And you could sit with them and you could try to point out to them how foolish they were for grumbling and rebelling and complaining and all of it. Like you could go back and try to talk some sense into them. My guess is they would say, you don't understand how bad it is out here. You don't understand the conditions that we're dealing with. You don't understand how dire our circumstance is. This is serious business. And they would have excuse after excuse after excuse for why their grumbling was okay. And their disobedience was okay. I just want you to remember and me to remember that when we fall into this same pattern, it reveals something about our hearts. And I want you to think about this quote from Phil Riken. I've quoted him several times in this series. He says, Our complaints 
really are never caused by outward circumstances. Instead, they reveal the inward condition of our hearts. And just like the Hebrews, we'd like to look at our circumstances and our situation and we'd like to say, yeah, but you don't understand what I'm going through. And we need to be reminded, your circumstances and your situation may shake you, but when you're shaken, whatever comes out of you is what was already inside of you. I mean, I can pick up my bottle of water down here, I can take the lid off and I can shake it. Coke's not coming out. Dr. Pepper's not coming out. Coffee's not coming out. Water's coming out. It's a bottle of water. And you are going to be shaken by circumstances and situations in life. No question about it. Just like the Hebrews were. You're going to be tested. And in that moment, what comes out of you is going to be what's already inside you. Your grumbling is not a result of your circumstance. It's a, a revealing of your heart. That means when you turn to Philippians 2 and you read this, look what Paul says in Philippians 2, do all things without grumbling. He's not just talking about a mouth issue. He's talking about a heart issue. He understands Exodus. He understands Jesus when Jesus says, whatever comes out of your mouth is what defiles you, not what goes in, but what comes out. And Jesus said, out of the overflow of your heart, your mouth speaks. So when Paul says, do all things without grumbling, he's not just telling you, keep your mouth closed if you can't say anything nice. He's saying, you need to deal with your heart. You need to get your heart right in submission to the Lord. So the first idea is this. What does Exodus 16 teach us about ourselves? We are radically corrupted by sin. Now for some good news. What does Exodus 16 teach us about God? God is immeasurably gracious to his people. He is immeasurably gracious to his people. God's grace is when he gives you the opposite of what you really deserve. We've talked about sin. We're radically corrupted by sin. What we deserve is instant and eternal death. That's what God owes us. When he gives us something good, when he gives us the opposite of what we deserve, that's his grace. And I just want you to think with me. Just dial your mind back to Genesis 1-1 and just kind of walk through the scriptures. If we could sort of, to go back to our thought experiment about the, the TV show Lost if we could forget the end of the book, forget how it all ends, and you could just start in Genesis for the very first time, and you start reading, and you've read through Adam and Eve, and you've read through the Tower of Babel, and Noah, and Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob, and the patriarchs, you've made it through all that, and you get to Exodus 16, and you read about these people grumbling out in the wilderness. After God saved them, they're just grumbling. What would you expect God to rain down on them? Maybe your mind would go to Genesis 6-5 that says this, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And in response to that, God rains down worldwide cataclysmic judgment in a flood. That's what he rained down on the world in response to that kind of sin. Maybe your mind would go to Genesis 18, verse 20, 
where it says, Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave. And the Bible says that in response to their sin, God rains down sulfur and fire on that city. And then you come to Exodus 16. And you read about these grumbling Hebrews. And you read that God's about to rain something down on them. And there's a plot twist. Because it's not a, a worldwide flood that he rains down and just wipes them all out. And it's not fire and sulfur that he rains down. It's not a flood and it's not fire. It's food. He gives them bread to eat. And he gives them bread to eat that tastes like honey. He could have at least made it taste bad. I'm going to give you something, but you're not going to like it. I'm going to rain down Brussels sprouts. <laughs> Eat them. See how hungry you are. I'm going to give you sweet bread to eat. That's his grace. They didn't deserve that. They deserved the exact opposite of that. They deserved the flood. They deserved the fire and the sulfur. And instead, God rains down on them bread. You won't be surprised. I've mentioned this along the way as we've gone through Exodus, and I just want to keep you apprised. There are a number of Bible scholars who don't think that this was a genuine miracle. And I have distilled down the four leading theories for what really happened here. You're going to like these. Theory number one, this was actually the excretion of a cicada that they ate. Theory two, it was actually plant lice. I read that multiple places and that I really think it's a real thing, but I've never heard of it. Plant lice. One guy says it was tree fungus. I guess they had a lot of trees in the wilderness, so there was <laughs> lots of fungus. And then the last guy, this is my favorite. It was insects eating sap from the tamarisk tree and let's just say digesting the sap. And that's what they ate. And the explanations go on. And they go on and they go on. Just take your Bible and look at it very quickly. This was a miracle. Look at verse 4. I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. Not the excretion of cicadas. Bread from heaven. Look what it says in verse 14. The people have no idea what it is. They've never seen anything like it. So when they see it, verse 15, they say, what is it? We don't know what it is. It wasn't something that occurred naturally. You can look later at Psalm 78. Psalm 78 says it was the bread of angels, which would fit with the idea that it was rained down from heaven. Look at verse 35. It says it stopped 40 years later. Whatever it was, it just cut off 40 years later. It wasn't some naturally occurring phenomenon that was just going on anyways that you could go there and see today. It happened for 40 years, and then it stopped. It was a miracle. And I want you to understand, not only was it a miracle, but it was a miracle of grace. Grace in the sense that the people did not deserve to get sweet bread rained down from heaven where all they had to do was walk outside their tent and pick it up. They deserved the flood. They deserved the fire. They deserved the sulfur. And God in his grace gave them bread. You also see God's grace in the Sabbath. And we're not going to talk about this long because we're going to come back to it when we get to the Ten Commandments. But look... These were people, don't miss the connection here. These were people who had been slaves for centuries. They didn't get days off. They didn't accrue vacation time. They didn't get paid leave or sick days. 
You're alive, you're working. Build the city, build the bricks, stack them high. Get your own straw for the bricks. We're not going to get it for you. That's what they were used to. Now they get out in the wilderness and their new owner says, I'm going to give you a day off every week. You don't have to do a thing. You don't even have to go out and gather food. Just get a little bit extra the day before and on the seventh day, just relax. I'm going to take care of you. Look, this is God's thing to his people. I'm not like Pharaoh. Pharaoh owned you and he needed you to do lots of things for him. And he tried to keep his thumb on you. That's not what I'm like. I saved you. I purchased you. I redeemed you. And I'm going to give you days off for free just because I love you. Look, the Jews took the idea of the Sabbath over the centuries and they twisted it into some burdensome thing with so many rules and regulations that you could never do it right. And originally, when you first read about it, God is saying to a bunch of slaves, I'm giving you time off. I will provide for you and I will take care of you. You don't have to worry and be in this rat race all the time because I will provide for my people. So we see God's immeasurable grace to his people. Last idea is this. How does Exodus 16 point us toward the gospel? Two thoughts. Number one, Jesus revealed the glory of God to mankind. Jesus is the full revelation of the glory of God. And you see this if you look in the text at Exodus 16, verse 7. God says, in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord. Again, in verse 10, you see it. The glory of the Lord appeared in a cloud. I'll be honest with you. That word glory is one of the hardest Bible words to really pin down a definition for. So let me just throw some things at you and maybe something will stick. God's glory is his reputation. It's his name. God's glory, the original word, has this idea of heaviness or weightiness. And when we talk about God's glory, we're talking about the weightiness of his character. That you don't just throw his name around in sentences like, well, I wish God would have just killed us back in Egypt. But you say, there's some heaviness here and some reverence due here. God's glory is, you can think of it as the sum total of his attributes. Everything that can be said of God, roll it all up in a ball, that's his glory. Isaiah describes it as when his holiness, his chief characteristic, goes on display for all the world to see. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is full of his, not holiness, but his glory. When his holiness goes on display, that's God's glory. And the people get a glimpse of it here, just a glimpse. It's kind of like Moses later when he says, show me your glory. And God puts him in the rock and he passes behind him and he gets to see a glimpse of God as he passes by. They just get a little taste of it. And the Bible says in John and in Hebrews, we have seen the full revelation of God's glory. Jesus Christ. If you want to know what the sum total of God and his character is like, you you look at Jesus and you say, that's it. That's the full revelation of the glory of God. We'll come back to that idea when we get to the tabernacle in a few weeks. We'll end with this. Jesus, how do we get to the gospel? Jesus claimed to be the bread of life. The bread of life. And this is why I read from John 6 earlier. John 6 is worth your time this week just to read through and to think about. It's really a neat story. Jesus has a group of people gathered together and they're listening to him preach. 
And it's one of the two times where he performs a, a bread miracle, a food miracle, and he multiplies a small amount of food so that all these thousands and thousands of people have food to eat. It's a great story. The people loved it. In the middle of the night, the night after that happened, Jesus snuck away. In fact, he crossed a lake and he went to the other side of a, an area and he tried to get away from those people. And they woke up so hungry, wanting bread in their bellies, that they tracked him down. And they meet up with Jesus, this massive horde of people. They meet him on the other side of the lake. They find him and they say to him, hey, how about some more of that bread? That was awesome. Do you think you could do it again? And Jesus, rather than just snapping his fingers or waving his hand or setting the buffet out, he starts to preach to the people. And it's maybe the most direct, confrontational, in-your-face sermon that he ever preached. I want you to look at what he said in John 6. He said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And you ought to have a little bell going off, a little clue in your head that says bread doesn't take care of my thirst, so maybe he's not talking about real bread here. But the people are hungry, and all they want is bread, and they hear Jesus say, I am the bread that came down from heaven, and these are people who know the Old Testament. They know the story of Exodus 16 probably better than you and I know it, and they say, wait a minute, wait a minute, bread from heaven, that's that Old Testament stuff. That, that's the stuff that God did through Moses for the people. He rained down bread from heaven for them. This guy says he is that bread. Look at the people's response. John 6, 41. The Jews, surprise, surprise, grumbled about him. Because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Jesus went on to talk to these people and he said really strange things that they had a hard time, no pun intended, swallowing. He said things like, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood if you want to have any part of me. Right? Like, just as the bread in Exodus 16 had to be picked up and eaten, you had to participate in it. It wasn't just a magical IV straight into your arm that kept you alive for 40 years. Like, you had to personally go out and there was some, some ownership of that. Jesus says to the people, you have to take me in. And they struggled with it and they wrestled with it. And in the end, what happened is what we read earlier. Many of these people just walk away. They say, this guy's crazy. This guy's comparing, he's making himself bigger than Moses. And they just walk away because they're not interested. They're offended at what Jesus had to say. And he looks at the guys closest to him and he says, you guys going to leave too? And Peter says, where are we going to go? What other option do we have? You have the words of eternal life. And we have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One from God. Look at Jesus' invitation, John 6, 37. Just a summary verse. All that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Listen, as you read the story of John 16, and, or excuse me, Exodus 16 and John 6, as you read the stories and you think about how Jesus connected them, there's really two options on the table for you. Option one is grumbling. You can grumble. Maybe you grumble that, you know, 
If I lived back then and saw the miracle, it would be really easy to believe. But I live now, so, you know, it's kind of hard to really take that in. That's grumbling. Maybe maybe you could grumble about the idea that someone would stand on a platform and look you in the eye and tell you you're worse than you think you are. And you say, "I I don't like to hear that kind of stuff. Maybe you grumble at me saying to you, you have nowhere else to go. There is only one person who has the words of eternal life, and his name is Jesus of Nazareth. There is nowhere else to go and find life. And maybe you grumble about that and you say, that's really narrow. It's narrow-minded of you. It's arrogant of you to say something like that. So you can grumble. The Hebrews grumbled in Exodus 16, and they thought they had good reason for it. And the Jews grumbled in John 6, and they thought they had good reason for it. The second option is the better option. And it's just to humble yourself and to say, where else will I go? Jesus has the words of eternal life. There's nowhere else to turn to. I can't be good enough. I don't need a system of morality that tells me how to earn my way up or deserve something. I know the truth about my own heart. I am worse than I think I am. I disappoint myself regularly. And the only hope I have is that in spite of my sin, God would be gracious to me. That he would look at the cross where Jesus gave his life and he would count my sin as paid in the cross. Not because I deserve it, just because he's gracious and he's kind. That he would welcome a sinner like me, not because I've mustered something up on my own ability to come, but just because the Father has seen fit to be gracious to me and to draw me to himself. In spite of my sin, that God might be gracious to me. So you can grumble, or you can come to Jesus and believe. You can believe that he will be gracious to you. He will give you the opposite of what you deserve. And that if you come, he will not cast you out. He will welcome you, and he will be gracious to you. I want you to bow, and let's pray together. Father, your word is true. Your word gives us hope. Father, we find hope in this story because it it does describe us. This is not a a fantasy. This is not a a make-believe scenario. Father, this is who we are. We see ourselves in this story, in all of these stories. We just stop to remind ourselves that Moses is not the hero. Aaron is not the hero. We are not the hero, Father. Jesus Christ is the hero of this story. And it is only through him that we find eternal life. 